The Palace of Glittering Delights contains spoilers for the topics discussed herein, and sometimes contains salty language. I've warned you. Talking Pictures TV, one of the low-down free cable channels, has been airing reruns of The Lone Ranger on Saturday mornings. These simple morality plays involve our white-hatted hero on his trusty steed, galloping around the plains, hollering a hearty hi-ho silver away as he rights wrongs, prevents injustice, and generally does good, mainly because it's the right thing to do. Which got me to thinking that my generation had their own Lone Ranger, Sure, his trusty steed had four wheels instead of four legs and was basic black rather than white, but the principle was the same, that one man, if he's the right man, can make a difference. The right man in this case was Michael Knight, a young loner in a dangerous world. The world of the Knight Rider, intoned the end narration of the first season episode. Knight Rider was, in essence, a revamped and modern take on The Lone Ranger, with Michael, played with Verve by David Hasselhoff, teamed up with, of all things, an ultra-high-tech car, essentially a sophisticated AI that talked, thought, and could in ways previously unprecedented for a machine. As voiced by William Daniels, the car, dubbed Kit, as its official name, the Knight Industries 2000, was deemed far too cumbersome, was, at the time the series was made, the epitome of sleek modernity. In addition to the almost sentient AI, Kit was in possession of a molecular bonded shell that rendered the vehicle virtually indestructible. He could travel at speeds in excess of 300 miles per hour, leaving the poor $6 million man in the dust. He possessed various devices such as X-ray, microjammer, surveillance modes, and could also drive itself when placed into auto-cruise. Up-to-date maps and satellite navigation were also deployed with regularity. Many of Kit's then-futuristic enhancements are now standard in modern-day cars, including on-screen displays, talking navigation, and a clean energy engine system that can, if need be, run on standard gasoline. Interestingly, Kit had no offensive weaponry like its contemporaries Street Hawk and Erwolf, instead being mostly purely defensive in its protective measures. It wasn't armed to the teeth with machine guns and rocket launchers, instead sticking to tried and true defensive mechanisms such as oil slicks, being bullet and fireproof, and ejector seats, should someone manage to actually break through Kit's defences. Over the course of the series, Kit would be upgraded and enhanced as per the needs of specific scripts. Various episodes showed Kit having a flamethrower, a grappling hook, and far more fanciful additions, such as the ability to drive on water. In reality, Kit was a heavily modified 1982 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am, and Kit was initially designed by Pontiac's design chief, John Schinella, and Los Angeles zone manager, John Kitts Miller. Kit's front scanner, with its iconic cycling red light, was modelled after the Cylon Warrior from series creator Glenn Larson's show, Battlestar Galactica. Larson was always willing to recycle, wherever possible. In the audio commentary on the pilot movie, Larson says he did that simply because he thought the Cylon effect looked cool in the dark, and it worked once, so why wouldn't it work again? 
Shinella would later provide detailed drawings, and with the cars finally in hand, they were quickly shipped to John Ward's shop in nearby Aqua Dulce to receive the modifications, which took six weeks to complete. Michael Chaffey, an independent studio designer, was also hired by Larson, and he would design and create Kit's elaborate interior and computerised dash. Chaffey would install the interior in two of the cars and provide a stationary book, which would be used for close-up shots of the controls. Given the high level of stunt work in the series, it's therefore a surprise to learn that Pontiac only supplied a few cars to the production. Early in filming, the producers only had in their possession four Trans Ams. The hero car with the functional dash, the backup to the hero car, which tended to just have a standard Trans Am dash in it, the backup to the hero car can easily be spotted in early episodes due to not having the distinctive gullwing steering wheel, rather the factory standard Pontiac steering wheel. In addition, there were two stunt cars for skidding and two-wheel driving, and what is called the Fliver car. The Fliver car isn't a Trans Am at all. It's a dune buggy stunt car with a fiberglass Trans Am body, normally used for jumps so the Trans Ams don't get damaged. If you're a nerd about all this detail, and I am, I urge you to check out Night Rider Historians on YouTube. The series, in addition to making the Pontiac Trans Am the car that 12-year-olds across the world wanted as they reached middle age, the series also launched David Hasselhoff's international career after being a soap opera star and appearing in the cheap Star Wars knockoff Star Crash. He was joined by Edward Mulher as the man who gave Michael his jobs, Devin Miles. Devon was originally called Devon Shire, but thankfully cooler heads prevailed. In the early episodes, Michael and Devon have an almost antagonistic relationship, with Michael's freewheeling ways clashing with Devon's more ordered approach, and Devon's willful lack of respect for Michael, and his complete lack of understanding as to how he was chosen for this mission. Kit is maintained and upgraded by Bonnie Barstow, played by the beautiful Patricia McPherson. The most memorable of the shows over Knight Rider's four-season room normally consisted of evil twins, technological terrors, or elaborate set pieces. Knight Rider, as a series, wasn't afraid to take every single bad TV idea that ever existed and turn it into an episode. So there were episodes where the characters got amnesia, including an episode where Kit forgot who he was. Episodes with doppelgangers, such as when we learn that Michael Knight's benefactor, Wilton Knight, had an errant son named Garth Knight. This resulted in a scenery-chewing dual performance from Hasselhoff. There were episodes where the indestructible car was, well, destroyed. In particular, the memorable rallying cry against pollution, Junkyard Dog. The most memorable of Kit's adversaries, however, was another Kit, an early prototype, Car. The Knight Automated Roving Robot. Carr's first appearance was in the episode Trust Doesn't Rust, the eighth episode of Knight Rider to broadcast. The episode is notable for flatly contradicting the notion of the pilot episode, that Kit's circuitry was integrated into Michael's already existing car. If this is the case, why is Carr also a Trans Am? Michael is very, very lucky. They didn't use his actual car for car, rather than for kit. Here's the teaser to Trust Doesn't Roast and Knight Rider's memorable opening theme. Michael, that car, it could have been my twin. It almost killed me. I am the Knight Automated Roving Robot. How may I serve you? 
that it's very dangerous for you and for Kit. Stop it, you'll kill him! Kit, I am warning you. Change course at once. I am not in control, car. by Stephen E. D'Souza, directed by Paul Stanley. D'Souza was Shane Black before Shane Black, writing many episodes of genre TV, including V, The Bionic Woman, The Six Million Dollar Man, and Tales from the Crypt, as well as the movies Commando, 48 Hours, The Running Man, and Die Hard. Stanley worked in Hollywood from the 1950s, directing many episodic TV installments for shows as diverse as Mission Impossible, Lost in Space, Hawaii Five-0, and MacGyver, amongst many, many others. The episode opens with two drunken thieves, Tony, played by Michael McRae, and The Rev, played by William Sanderson, breaking into the holdings of Knight Industries and stealing the prototype for Kit, Car. Why Car is stored in a nondescript factory in downtown LA, guarded by only one security guard with no other evident alarms or systems, is a mystery known only to Wilton Knight, and he's dead, so he ain't telling. By coincidence, Michael and Kit are here to check on the facility and close it up before it's handed over to the county in the morning. Apparently they should have been doing this earlier, but Michael was getting busy with a young lady. The Rev and Tony manage to activate and steal Carr, nearly killing Michael in the process. Devon has to explain to Michael and Bonnie about Carr, as both knew nothing about it. With Kit, Devon explains the preservation of human life is paramount, but with Carr... It's all about self-preservation. I adore how the producers present programming as something that's immutable. Upon realising the mistake, apparently Wilton scientists didn't think about just formatting Carr's hard drive and rebooting him. Instead, they scrapped him and made a brand new one. How is that in any way cost-effective? Anyway, Tony and the Rev wake up the next day and Carr explains it all to them in words of one syllable. Are you awake? Uh, we're moving, we're moving, moving! Huh? It wasn't a dream. You're here, I'm here, it's here. Wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. 
Where are we? This is where your companion told me to stop last night. I did? Actually, most of what you said was incoherent. I did, however, distinctly hear the word stop. You're just a car, ain't you? Not just a car. I am the night automated roving robot. Car, if you prefer. I am the prototype of the car of the future. I mean, you're a regular, real, real thing. Not just something out of a nightmare like you looked last night. Nothing has changed since last night. Oh, yeah, it's easy for you to say. Well, where did you come from, anyway? And how did you get in that building? That edifice was the laboratory where I was first activated and where I was also deactivated. Deactivated? You mean somebody turned you off? My creator, Wilton Knight. He brought me into the world and then turned on me. Oh, take it easy, take it easy. My old man, same way. Yeah, you can't count on nobody except me and Tony. <laughs> Interesting. I will enter that information in my data banks. I am indebted to both of you. You have reactivated me. How may I serve you? It's coming back to me. Last night, there was a guy and another car, just like, like you, huh? You are mistaken. I am one of a kind. No, no, no. Rev's right. I saw it too. I am the prototype of the car of the future. What you saw was merely an inferior production line model. A pale copy of the original. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You must be right, car. This guy has got a touchy motor. Very well. Now, may I take you somewhere for food? Do you wish to drive, or shall I? Go ahead. viewers may recognise the voice of Carr, though. Optimus Prime voice actor Peter Cullen provides Carr's dulcet tones, and he does a great job with it, bringing a nice line in sardonic humour to the character. Carr doesn't understand human nuance and takes everything literally, providing levity, despite the fact that Carr is played as a serious adversary throughout. He's a lot more menacing than the avuncular William Daniels as Kit, and his yellow voice modulator carries more ominous overtones than Kit's red one, which is weird given that it's red that means danger. Armed with car, Tony and the Rev start committing crimes, tearing up the town in a series of daring robberies. Only Kit and Michael can bring Carr to justice. Knight Rider was always a show that emphasised fun over logic, and to spend too much time actually thinking about the mechanics of the plot is probably a waste of time. That said, D'Souza writes a pretty tight episode with very little flab. We open with the stealing of Carr already underway, and we're quickly brought up to speed as to who he is and where he came from. And then it's action all the way, pitting Trans Am versus Trans Am in a series of cool stunts and fast-paced action. D'Souza also escalates the threat as the episode runs along, which it does at a fur clip. Bonnie and Devon devise a way of stopping Carr. But, of course, there's a problem. 
Well, we all know that kit and car are made of a virtually indestructible alloy. Hardly anything could damage either car. Hardly anything, that is, except this. Whoa. That's very interesting. It's a resonating laser, Michael. It's powerful enough to send a burst of energy directly into Carr's only vulnerable spot. The front scanner, here. But the scanner is protected by an alloy grill. Only a dead-on shot can work. Then the scanner will blow, and with it, all of Carr's systems. It'll become an immobilized hunk of metal. Bonnie? That's, uh, that's very impressive. Well, it seems doable. Wait a minute. Why all the long faces? To perform this task, Michael, you and Kit must be directly in front of car. For maximum effect, you must fire the laser at a distance no greater than 100 yards. And you must hold the laser on target for at least two full seconds. Two seconds. 100 yards. Kit and car can travel a hundred yards in two seconds. Yes, that's the problem. By the way, the laser's only good for two shots. Any more would deplete Kit's batteries. It's never easy, is it? D'Souza also has Carr realise that his incarceration has meant that some of his systems are depleted and he needs some TLC. For this, he needs no scrubs, but a qualified technician. The Rev isn't down with kidnapping, but the far more immoral Tony plots with Carr to kidnap Bonnie. It's very strange to watch these shows nowadays and see that not only were they more than capable of sending themselves up, but they had a keen sense of humour about themselves. Yet they still did dramatic scenes without being all meta and mocking, a trait modern writers could perhaps look at and maybe try to emulate. The episode even has some attempts at decent characterisation, with Tony being depicted as a man without conscience and the Rev being far more considerate. It's actually a genuine surprise when Tony kills the Rev, especially with the wonderfully black comic line that Carr has, asking, why did you deactivate the Rev? Kit manages to track Carr's telemetry, because they kind of have a similar echolocation thing, because only Kit has a certain signature frequency, but Carr has it also, which makes it easy to locate him, which explains how they manage to keep bumping into each other. And they rescue Bonnie, but having not had time to install the laser properly, she has to go with Michael to activate it manually. Now, I'm not saying this is Byzantine plotting, but it's a taut episode of a normally anodyne show, and it races to its climax. Everything is set up and paid off. Early developments come into play later, and there are even some nice surprises, such as Bonnie missing her two chances to deactivate Carr with the laser. Stunt work is mostly pretty damn good, and if the episode doesn't really stress any real science fiction ideas, like the use of AI in society, or how far we should go in our quest to build intelligent computers, well, that's because it's an episode of Knight Rider and not an Isaac Asimov novel. The acting is about what you would expect. I have a soft spot for Hasselhoff, who makes the relationship between a man and his car thoroughly believable, which is pretty much a hell of an acting feat in and of itself. A better actor probably couldn't have pulled this off as well as he does. Sanderson and McRae also bring it, delineating their characters' differences as we see the old maxim of absolute power corrupting Tony, whilst the Rev tries to maintain his soul in the midst of all this madness. 
Kudos also to McPherson, who excels in an expanded role. She has a perky chemistry with Hasselhoff, and she's suitably smug when Michael accuses Kit of liking her more. It's a shame she wasn't given more opportunities to shine over the run of the show. Stu Phillips also delivers a good score, giving Carr his own theme, and for those interested, a Knight Rider's soundtrack was released in 2019 with the score to this episode part of the selection. The climax is exciting. Earlier in the episode, Kit introduced Michael to the concept of an irresistible force meeting an immovable object, and with the laser so much scrap, Michael decides to test the theory. I am warning you. Change course at once. I am not in control, Carr. Then tell the humans to turn away. This is folly, Kit. He's right. He's right. No way. Michael, what are you doing? Remember Zeno and that immovable object thing? We're about to find out the answer. Your lives mean nothing to me. Michael, please. Pardon the expression, but he does have a few screws loose. Turn. Carr doesn't have my programming to protect human life. That's what I'm counting on, buddy. What? Michael, I cannot allow you to jeopardize your life. I am assuming control. No, you're not, Kit! Michael, you know all those times I've called you irresponsible and impulsive? I didn't mean it. Bonnie, remember all those times I called you bossy and demanding? I didn't mean it either. Michael, Bonnie. Yes, Kit. Yes, Kit. Why are you lying to each other? Turn away. Turn away. you so sure that Carr would turn away first? How did you know you wouldn't, uh... Chicken out? Thank you, Bonnie. Yes, Michael. How did you know you wouldn't chicken out first? You provided that clue, Kit. You kept telling me how you two differed in your basic programming. Yours is to protect human life, but Carr's was self-preservation. So, in head-to-head -head confrontation, Carr would always chicken out. Eloquently put. Michael, I'm speechless. A likely story. No, really. Michael, your logic in this case is totally illogical, and yet it's absolutely correct. This is just amazing. No, Kit. It's just human. Here's the Kit, huh? The Kit. The Kit. kit. Part of the fun of watching this era of TV is, of course, the goofs. Producers have literally no respect for the intelligence of the audience, and so a multitude of mistakes creep into the production, either due to time constraints or laziness. Michael's clothes don't match in an early shot where a close-up of his hands on the wheel is taken from a previous show. At various points in this episode, both Kit and Carr's front scanner breaks or isn't working at all. Carr's initial rampage is all stock footage from other episodes, one of which had the Trans Am suddenly covered with Silver Star stickers as it's stock from an earlier episode entitled Slamming Sammy's Stunt Show Spectacular. There are still shots of Michael clinging to Carr's roof a few minutes after he's just jumped free. The best goof, though, is the end. Carr is destroyed when Kit is forced to go head-to-head -head with Carr, and Carr's self-preservation kicks in, leading him to avoid the clash and drive off a cliff, instead of the far more logical course of action, turbo-boosting over Kit and then driving off to freedom. As Carr drives off the cliff, suddenly a black Trans Am metamorphosizes into a white station wagon, thanks to badly chosen stock footage. Still, this lackadaisical approach to the material all just adds to the charm of the show. Trust Doesn't Rust is what it is. 
an episode of a show that wasn't high art, but not everything has to be high art. It's pretty bad science fiction, but it's a fun episode. Long-time readers will know I'm a sucker for the TV tie-in novel. And yes, Trust Doesn't Rust was honoured with such a bang-up piece of merchandise. Written by Roger Hill and Glenn A. Larson, although I suspect Larson's involvement was purely contractual, the novel kicks off with the differences immediately. By taking place only hours after the pilot movie, i.e. the first novel, and ignoring the seven episodes that aired prior. We know this because Michael and Devon are still aboard the Night Industries jet, flying back after the events of the pilot movie and the previous novel. The book introduces Bonnie and establishes that she's always been around, developing and refining Kit from the beginning, even though we didn't see her in the pilot, nor was she in the novel for the pilot, a character beat that contradicts the episode, where Bonnie tells Michael that Carr was before my time. This does allow for a neat moment we never saw in the show, the first meeting between Bonnie and Michael. The concept of Kit having a prototype is introduced a lot earlier, with Devon explaining in more detail the hows and whys of Kit's creation, again, something not really delved into on the show. The book, as with the episode, doesn't explain how Carr can also be a trans am. The novel does remove the coincidence of having Kit and Michael be at the warehouse just as Carr is stolen. Devon, in the novel, has already explained what Carr is and that it still needs deactivating, and he and Michael and Kit are headed for the warehouse deliberately for that purpose, a far more compelling reason for being there than the TV episode, where apparently Wilton just forgot all about this prototype dangerous murderous car he has just lying around in a factory somewhere. Interestingly, the novel upgrades Kit's voice modulator here as well, on the show, Kit would continue with the red flashing light and not the LED-type display seen in this episode for Carr. Kit would have to wait until episode 14 for his modulator to be upgraded on the show. Again, this makes a lot of sense in the book. Carr's voice modulator is much cooler than Kit's, so the prototype having something more advanced than the completed version doesn't make a lot of sense. As with most novels of its kind, it does its best to paper over the cracks of the television script. The events are given a more believable sheen. Carr's kidnapping of Bonnie and her subsequent rescue are grittier and less contrived. And the conclusion to the TV episode, which makes no goddamn sense, is set up and explained better. In the show, Carr swerves off the road and explodes for no reason, something which flies in the face of the logic of the TV show, where both Kit and Carr's indestructibility is baked into the premise of the series. In the novel... It's established that a flaw Carr has that was corrected in Kit is that his power packs can overload and be potentially dangerous, even explosive, if not corrected. As such, in the novel, Carr swerves to avoid his confrontation with Kit, but the impact with the cliff face and the subsequent hitting the water isn't what does him in as it does in the show. It's the elevated overheating of those same power packs. Both the novel and the TV episode end with the result in no doubt. Carr is gone, fulfilling the promise of the German legend of the doppelganger, that eventually one of them will end up dead. However, Knight Rider was not a show that was about to let a good idea go to waste. Despite all evidence to the contrary, Carr survived to bedevil Michael and Kit another day. Specifically, the third season episode, Kit vs. Carr. 
Writer Stephen E. D'Souza had long since left the production by this point, so the follow-up episode was written by Richard Oakey and directed by Vinrick Kolb. Peter Cullen also didn't return as Carr, who this time was voiced by Paul Fries. Here's the teaser. Oh God, stop! Freeze, engineer! I know what you're thinking, but it wasn't me. Fanny, I'm barely touching the turtle! Armour's kit's a prototype with all of the kit's capabilities. I wouldn't move, Mr. Miles. The fortune in gold. Goodbye, Michael Knight. Kit vs. Car was the first episode filmed for the third season, although the sixth erred. I suspect this was simple logistics. The first episode of season three saw Kit destroyed and completely rebuilt with a new dash. By filming this episode first, the producers had that old dash on standby. I don't know that for a fact, that's just my supposition. The episode starts when mechanic John Stanton and his girlfriend Mandy are searching the beach with his metal detector for Spanish doubloons. He's alarmed to pick up something big. Even more alarmed to discover it's a tricked out black T-top. I wish I could find a tricked out black T-top just lying around on the beach. Why does stuff like that never happen to me? Continuity was never Knight Rider's strong point, but this episode really takes the cake. Not only is Carr discovered on the beach despite crashing into the sea, he's in one piece where he was clearly seen to explode in the previous episode. He also has a different voice and a yellow front scanner, whereas in the first episode he had the same red scanner Kit had. His voice modulator is also different. He also has a new license plate that says Carr. I'm sure all of these errors will be explained as we go along. Spoilers, none of these errors will be explained. Carr also seemed none the worse for wear for his experience, quickly taking control of the situation and manipulating John to his own ends. Here's a clip. Uh, where were you when I was 17? I thought the days in a hot car make me feel good again were over. Guess I was wrong. I'm gonna hate to have to give you up, Slick. Then don't. Oh. Okay, what is this? A joke? Oh, a tape recorder? What, is Alan Fun gonna pop up and say smile on candy camera? Who's Alan Fun? Hey, what is this? You're a car. Cars don't talk. Correct. I am not a car. I am the night automated roving robot. The first in a bold new experiment. You may call me car. Beach isn't actually the least remarkable of my functions. Get in. Let me show you what I can really do. You're a bold new experiment, huh? Well, I think that's terrific. Personally, I'm not a bold new experiment. I think you'd be happy with somebody else. John, the days of feeling good aren't over. Not for someone who still dreams. Not for someone like you. Think of me as the genie in the magic lamp. When am I supposed to be, Aladdin? If you choose.
As you can see, terrain doesn't hamper my performance. I am designed for virtually every condition. I don't believe it. I don't believe any of this. John is played by Jeffrey Osterhart, who was one of the runners-up for the role of Michael Knight, fact fans. One element of continuity they do acknowledge is that Kit can pick up Carr's telemetry and sensor echoes, and this caused Kit to feel a little squiffy. He and Michael immediately run into Carr, because by pure coincidence, they happen to be in the same area. What are the odds? Kit seems as baffled as the audience that Carr is in one piece. Devon orders Michael to stay away from Carr until Bonnie can beef up Kit's security. An order Michael ignores, and he and Kit start doing some detective work. Kit versus Carr plays with the same themes as Trust Doesn't Rust, in that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, but only if one wants it to. John isn't a criminal or a thief, and he refuses Carr's advances, but his boss, Eddie, isn't quite as honourable. Eddie has a dicky ticker, and he's offering John the chance to buy the business, a situation Carr is only too quick to turn to his advantage by causing Eddie's pacemaker to malfunction. At the time this episode was aired, the influence of Miami Vice was being felt across all of American television, and this episode shows that more than most. There's a lengthy scene of Michael looking for Carr to the strains of Bananarama's Cruel Summer, or a cover of Bananarama's Cruel Summer at any rate. Miami Vice must have had a real music budget. Unlike the writers, who seem to have a Swiss cheese memory in this regard, Carr seems to have some recollection of the previous encounter, and he immediately hits up Bonnie for help getting back into shape. He raids the Night Industry semi and steals the laser from the last episode that Bonnie has pulled out of storage for use against Carr again. After all, it wasn't the laser that didn't work last time, but human error. Oddly, he doesn't kidnap Bonnie this time, but he does find time to get a nice natty new paint job, with someone spraying the bottom half of Carr matte grey to counteract the sheer black of the rest of the car. It also makes it easier to spot the difference between the two cars. After this attack, Michael is able to identify John as being the boyfriend of the girl he spoke to while he was wandering around listening to Banana Rama. Again, like Trust Doesn't Rust, there's some decent characterisation here. Unlike Tony and the Rev, Johnny's cursed with a conscience and isn't swayed by Carr's destructive and self-motivated ways. He ditches Carr and leaves him with Eddie after Eddie and Carr realise they are peas in a pod. Carr, for his part, is oilier here than his first appearance. He's more manipulative, not as self-obsessed, but more casually cruel and nasty. I mean, this is Knight Rider, so he doesn't go on an all-out killing spree, but he's more likely to use coercion than in Trust Doesn't Rust, where he was actually quite naive in his understanding of humanity. In this episode, Carr is much more like Law in Star Trek The Next Generation than he is like Data. Of course, this is all rushing towards its climax, the Kit versus Carr showdown promised by the title. Eddie tells Carr of an armoured transport loaded with gold. Carr cares not for gold, he's not Auric Goldfinger, but he does care that the money generated from that gold could be used to generate money to keep him in tip-top condition. Kit and Michael learn of the impending robbery, but with John having deserted, Carr kidnaps Mandy to get her to get John to go along with the plan. Of course, Carr doesn't really care about the armoured car. He wants Michael and Kit. The conclusion is actually quite well done, even if it doesn't make a lick of sense. 
As with the first appearance of Carr, the writers paint themselves into a corner that they don't really adequately explain their way out of. Carr is as indestructible as Kit, but they always seem to find a way to exploit a weakness in Carr that Kit, miraculously, doesn't have. In this case, they essentially just redo the end of the original episode, Trust Doesn't Rust, but reverse it. Carr now has the laser rather than Kit, but to work it, it has to be installed in the weak spot in the scanner that the laser is aimed at to destroy Carr. So essentially, he's trying to do to Kit what Kit did to him in Trust Doesn't Rust. Always a good idea for a sequel, just reverse the ending. Kit and Carr duke it out, but then they turbo-boo straight at each other, with Kit aiming directly for that same weak spot. He hits it, bullseye, and Carr explodes. So does Kit not have this weak spot? Or has the laser somehow made it weaker than Kit's weak spot? Or do they hit the laser, the backfire of which causes Carr to explode? Any of these answers are acceptable, but the show doesn't seem to settle on one. Still, the stunt and model work here is pretty flawless. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Model work, Andrew. You are correct, lovely listener. This episode has model work. See, after the first season, the producers of Knight Rider were becoming a tad concerned about the cost of all the stunts, not least because of the damage these stunts did to the cars. Now, they didn't only have three Trans Ams anymore by the time they reached the third season. They had quite a few. A train derailment of Pontiac and Firebirds resulted in an influx of new cars to the production towards the end of the first season of Knight Rider. These cars had to be written off due to the insurance, so Pontiac sold them to movie studios for a dollar apiece under the proviso they were destroyed after the series was finished with them. They may no longer have been roadworthy, but they were perfect for a television production in dire need of Pontiac spur parts, and some of the cars barely had a scratch on them. Even with these spurs, though, some stunts were deemed too dangerous or costly, and for those stunts, the producers turned to Jack Sessoms and Pete Slagle. Sessoms and Slagle specialised in model work for Hollywood movies and films, and starting in the second season, they provided a lot of work for Knight Rider. The climax of this episode sees Carr destroy a bridge with the armoured car atop it, turbo boost into the support struts, and finally has Kit and Carr collide with each other in mid-air, with Carr subsequently exploding. All the stunts with the bridge, the armoured truck, and Carr destroying same, plus the mid-air collision and explosion, were all produced by the duo. Sure, you can tell which are models and which are real transams, but only if you look closely. The resultant model work is mightily impressive, and certainly less costly to the production than colliding two real, full-size Trans Ams. The episode concludes with John and Mandy absolved of all guilt, and even cashing the reward money posted for information about Carr back in Trust Doesn't Rust, a loophole exploited by Michael that Devon is not fond of. The finale sees evidence that Carr may still have some life in him. Surprisingly, despite this ending, Carr was never seen again. The producers missed a trick, teaming Carr up with Michael's evil twin brother, Garth Knight, for a two-hour season four opening episode telemovie would have been simply glorious. But it was not to be. 
Both Trust Doesn't Rust and Kit vs. Car are hugely entertaining slices of hokum. Knight Rider never takes itself too seriously, so the audience happily goes along with its frankly ludicrous plots and simplistic dialogue because, well, because it's fun. It's undemanding pabulant, formulaic, boy's own adventure stuff, undemanding and resolutely dim, and yet despite all of that, or maybe because of it, Knight Rider works. It's the ultimate in pizza and a beer telly. Kids can watch it, adults can laugh at it, but both audiences can be charmed by it. One man can make a difference, and one man in his car can make for a fun hour's viewing. Crusader in a dangerous world, the world of the Night Rider. Okay, should we look at the email section of the show? Get myself <clears throat> comfortable. Though. That's always better to be comfortable. I think you'll agree. Yes, I'd love an Eric Larson Spider-Man show, says Rob McCarthy. Three reasons. I want to know what you think. Well, it'll probably be along the same lines as Michelini and Larson. To, as, um, sorry, as Michelini and McFarlane, to be honest with you. But, you know. Two, I want to know what I think after so long. Almost Miami Vice levels of it can't be as good as I remember. Three, it has good guy Sandman. The most wasted potential of any concept at Marvel. I agree with you entirely on that score. All right, we'll follow up McFarlane with uh, Eric Larson then. That's a unanimous vote. The eyes have it. Anyone against... Hold your peace. Oh, that's an audio thing, so I could be holding my peace now. You don't know. Thank you for that, Rob. That's, uh, that's got the next couple of episodes sorted, isn't it? Matt Prather's emailed in. Fun episodes, which is a lot I like to hear. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Matt. Had fun listening to the last couple of episodes as I stir up my pile of unwatched DVDs on top of the television in my art studio. I can't in good faith say I'll definitely get around to watching all the things that pique my interest on your show. But keep it up. I may live longer than I think. Burn Notice was a favourite of mine that my lovely wife didn't care for. I saw quite a few of the early episodes, but not so much later in the run. As it got more involved in longer stories, watching reruns out of order got a little less enjoyable. Not being a petty man and not wanting to put up any barriers, be by myself and physical affection, watching it when my wife wasn't home seemed like the way to go. Crusade and Babylon 5 both escaped me when they first erred. Catching the odd episode over the years, it seemed like a solid show. I'm adding it to the list. Watching shows in this digital age is easier than ever before, but I seem to make so little progress. Well, with Babylon 5, you can watch the first four seasons and then just skip to the last episode of season five and don't bother with anything else. I mean, it won't save you a lot of time, but watching only 89 episodes instead of 110 and all the telemovies and Crusade, it'll save you some time. Public service announcement. 
On the recommendation of a lifelong friend, continues Matt, I've been watching the Doom Patrol and enjoying it. Pretty much the show mines a lot from the Grant Morrison run, with wonderfully quirky bits of other runs sprinkled in. Don't know if it is too Grant Morrison-y for you, but I am digging it. I recommended it wholeheartedly. A lot of people have recommended Doom Patrol. I, honestly, I have no idea where I can watch Doom Patrol over here. I don't know what channel it's on, if it's even on a channel or a streaming service. I've not seen it on Netflix or Amazon Prime for free, whether it's on one of those subsidiary channels of Amazon, which piss me off. Yeah, I mean, pay more money. No. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where Doom Patrol would be available for me to watch it. So, But it certainly looks interesting. As always, thanks for the wonderful shows and indulging my semi-coherent ramblings. No, thank you for indulging my semi-coherent ramblings. All the best, Matt Prather. Well, you're very welcome, Matt. I am glad you are enjoying this delve into whatever the hell takes my fancy. And that about wraps it up for this time. If you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. The advantage of missing a bit of time as I was working on three or four shows at once is that I can let you know that next time... On an all-new episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights, we'll be returning to Spider-Man to wrap up the Todd McFarlane era. Sounds like something you would enjoy. Y'all come back now. You hear? Okay, take care. Everything's going to be fine. See y'all real soon when I come back with more drivel from out of the palace. Goodbye.